Well, as often happens, uh, the Sunday school lesson this morning is pretty much the sermon. So this is kind of round two. Corinth was beset by false doctrine and false teachers. That was almost 2,000 years ago. The church still finds itself in that predicament today. Look at the most popular TV evangelists or the biggest churches in the nation. You find a healthy dose of false doctrine, often false teaching. Why is this? We should ask, why? The, the book seems to have truth pretty clearly laid out. Why is that? Well, truth is not very popular. God's great holiness and man's wickedness and sinfulness is not a really healthy way to grow a church if all you want is numbers. It doesn't tickle our itching ears. So we soften the message. We change this a little bit. We conform to culture a little bit more. Make it more exciting. And then we can really pack them in. Paul would reject all of that. And our text this morning is going to show that. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we preach through the book of 2 Corinthians. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? Perfect in all that it says. Be reading chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let us pray for wisdom. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we come to you, triune God, and we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would open our eyes to see clearly and understand these truths, that we would be encouraged and you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember earlier in this letter, Paul has said that he's a minister of the gospel, of the new covenant. Christ had called him specifically to that office. And he says in chapter 3, for this reason alone, I'm sufficient for the call. Every minister today feels the same way. I'm not sufficient in myself, of course, but only because of the one who called me. And Paul said, I was called to be a minister of the new covenant. And this is a church that had sorely tested Paul. He was horribly persecuted by this church. In chapter 2, we read already that he despaired of life. Such was the test of this particular church. But even larger than the church of Corinth, he was persecuted by the Jews everywhere he went and even by the Roman government. And yet because of his calling, he would not quit. He would persevere. So there are three points that we're going to talk about as we look at the power of the gospel. First, that it brings perseverance. God's call brings perseverance. Secondly, that The minister of God rejects subterfuge, any form of deception. And thirdly, that God's gospel inspires confidence. Paul says all these things and much more in these two verses. But first, let's look at how God's call produces perseverance. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. One of the first kind of 
Bible lessons I remember my dad teaching me was when you read the Bible, if you see the word therefore, he said, stop back, stop and step back, Richard, and ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? And that's actually really relevant to all of your Bible study. When you see the word therefore, it's there for a reason. It refers to all that's come before it in that letter. And based on that, Paul is often saying, based on that, you should do this. Or based on that, this reality encourages me. And here he says, he says, therefore, referring to all the stuff he had previously mentioned about being called by God to be a minister of the new covenant, remembering that all the results of his ministry are in God's hands, and therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, he's not going to grow weary or lose heart. He says the mercy of God is part of this confidence that he has. Mercy and grace are used in all of Paul's letters to describe the redeeming work of Christ. Grace, of course, is getting something that you don't deserve, a good gift that you absolutely have not earned and you don't deserve it. That's grace. You get something good. Mercy is kind of the other side of that coin. It's not getting the punishment that is due you for your life, for your sin. And Paul, whenever he mentions his own ministry, he remembers grace and mercy. So here he, he focuses on the mercy of God as giving him great confidence. Why is that? Well, don't you remember when he was called to the ministry? He was on the road to Damascus to do what? To persecute the church. He was rounding up families, hauling them off to prison, ruining their lives, and even presiding over the deaths of the saints. And God met him on the road to Damascus and changed him once and for all. He should be the one in prison. Paul should be the one whose life is ruined. Paul should be the one who is killed and in hell forever. And yet in God's mercy, he changed all of that and made him a minister of the gospel. Paul also writes in Romans chapter 12, that in view of God's mercies, we all should offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We all should have confidence to live the gospel that we believe. God's mercy is not just an inspiration for Paul, but it's an inspiration for all of us to remember where he's brought us from and what he's brought us to. All saints should be dying to themselves as living sacrifices not living for ourselves, our own enjoyment, our own pleasure, our own worldly success, but living for God, looking to Christ alone, remembering the mercy of God in our calling, in our election, in our sanctification, in our future glorification, in all of the love that Christ has shown us. He should become precious to us. We become, begin to see him as he really is, the almighty God the rose of Sharon, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field that we'll do anything to get. And certainly, we will not give up. And that's why Paul says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, he says, we do not lose heart. I've been called on the road to Damascus by God himself. In his great mercy, he's called me to this ministry. Therefore, I won't lose heart. The authorized version, the King James Version, says, I will not faint. 
I wonder if the words of Isaiah were in his mind when he wrote those words. Isaiah chapter 40, where God says to the Israelites, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, certainly today, ministers of the gospel are still beset on every side and tempted to faint, to run from the heat. And if you're going to preach clearly and teach clearly the word of God, you're going to feel heat. So it's not just Paul who feels the heat and feels like his life is despairing. Of course, I'm not talking about myself particularly, but just in general. Ministers are going to feel heat in as much as they preach the truth of God's word. And be tempted to faint, to lose heart. But you don't have to be a minister to feel like fainting in your Christian walk or in your life. Satan doesn't just want to attack and destroy ministers. He wants to destroy all of God's people. And we all feel at times that there's a situation in our life that we are going to lose heart over. We're going to faint. We're not going to make it. The sickness is just too persistent. The pain is too severe. The relationship is too broken. The financial hardship is too insurmountable. The addiction is too deeply entrenched. And you feel like fainting. You feel like quitting. But God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten his people at all. In your pain and your sorrow, in the chains of your addiction, in the despair of your depression, turn to God. He's given you great and mighty gifts. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you His church, the body of Christ. He's given you His promises. And as you rely on God and use these means of grace in your lives, you will make it. You will not faint. As we sang, in Christ alone, Our hope is found. We don't like that, do we? We want to fix everything ourselves. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song, our cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought or storm. When you feel like you're in a drought or a storm, you place your feet on the solid ground of Jesus Christ and His Word. And you will get through it. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not making light of your problems. But I'm saying you will make it as you rely on Christ. So Paul drew courage and perseverance from God's mercy as he thought of these things. And he decided that he would not quit. He would not give up. It gave him confidence when he thought of God's mercy. But secondly, we see also that Paul rejects all form of subterfuge. He has confidence in the power of the gospel as well to do the work that God has called him to do. And this is very different from the teachers, the false teachers at Corinth. So in verse 2, we see not only an indictment against the false teachers, but Paul embracing what is true about the gospel. 
Look at verse 2. He says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Paul says when he came and preached, and when he preaches, he doesn't need to manipulate the message, to manipulate the word of God. He doesn't need to use any underhanded ways to preach the gospel, to make it more effective. He doesn't use cunning. He doesn't tamper with the word of God, he said. And truly to do that would be a false teacher teaching a false gospel. And there are false gospels all over the world today. They're so numerous that it's hard to even wrap your arms around them. It shouldn't surprise us. The enemy has always been the one to take the word of God and twist it. To twist the truth of God's word just a little bit to make it false. Thereby deceiving so many people. I just want to focus on a few things this morning as we think about false gospels and false teachers. Any gospel, any preaching that adds any requirements at all to our justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if it adds anything to that, it's a false gospel. Let me give you a few examples. If a church teaches that to be saved, you must abstain from eating certain foods or only worship on a certain day. Or like the Roman Catholic Church, you must only be a member of that church and you must partake of the Mass. You must confess to the priest. And These are all things that are works righteousness. It's a false gospel. It's adding to our justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. I'm not trying to be mean to people in those churches, but it's important for you to know these things so that you have compassion when you meet people stuck in those kinds of traditions. They're false gospels. Can people be saved in a church like that? Well, yes, I'm convinced that they can. But when they see the truth, they won't stay there long. They're going to look for a church that's more pure, teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If a church teaches that your unregenerate soul is able to come to God apart from any work of God, that you have it in you to come to God on your own, apart from any grace of God at all, that's a false gospel. It's a gospel of your own works. It's a gospel that adds to the grace that God has given us, being justified by grace through faith alone. So we must ask again, why is works righteousness so popular? Why do humans feel like they need to add to this justification by grace through faith? Why? Why do we feel like we need to play a part in our salvation? We need to do something to add to God's work. It's because it seems right in the eyes of fallen man, doesn't it? it? It appeals to our fallen nature. The right truth, the right doctrine, Paul's doctrine of salvation is that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. He does that work. Theologians call this monergism. He does the transforming work by himself. And then our spiritual eyes are opened for the first time. And we see clearly who we are, wicked, before a holy God. And we see clearly who God is, Holy, righteous, just, and true. 
And we realize how much we need our Savior. And we turn to him in faith and repentance. Charles Wesley wrote so wonderfully in the hymn, And Can It Be, of this particular transaction that happens. I think it's verse 3. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off and my heart was free. And I rose, went forth and followed thee. So what Charles Wesley is doing is he's showing that his heart was bound in sin, in the dungeon of sin, in death. And until God's eye diffused a quickening ray, until he regenerated Charles's heart, He could not even see. The chains remained on him. He was singing of the doctrine of our salvation by grace through faith in Christ. However, there are also plenty of preachers who don't just teach bad information, a false gospel. They use underhanded means to present what they think is the true gospel as well. Paul talks of this. They use disgraceful, underhanded ways, and they practice cunning and tamper with God's word. Well, how might that happen? I think, first of all, I would say it's all of our temptation when we speak of Christ to try to soften the message just a little bit. It's not very popular to tell someone that they're hopelessly lost in their sin. They're spiritually dead. They bring nothing good to the table before God. There's nothing in them that pleases God. That's not very popular, is it? So we soften that message. We soften the message because we think somehow it makes the gospel more palatable. Preachers who refuse to talk about sin and hell because it might be offensive who teach that God really just wants you to be fulfilled inside, to find your inner strength, to live your best life now by some kind of positive reinforcement, to to remember your own goodness, to get through life, to trust in yourself. This is disgraceful and underhanded preaching. Preachers who teach a cheap grace that you can be saved and not have a changed life, that you can have Jesus be your Savior by thinking all the right things, but not have him as your Lord and your master. That he has no authority over you. That you can be saved and, and know the right things, but then reject the truth of God's word, the authority of God's word. Reject his church. Reject his message. This is disgraceful and underhanded preaching. Preachers who teach that the moral obligations of the word of God are somehow slightly abrogated in our modern culture. It's just too offensive. We've progressed beyond that. The miracles in the Bible, they don't really mean that God created the world in six days and all very good by the word of his power. That, that's not really what the Bible teaches. Jesus didn't really walk on water. Jonah wasn't really in the belly of a giant fish. All of these kinds of things, we know. We've, we've, we've gone beyond that. Or all the moral qualifications that we read in the Word of God. That they've somehow been changed a little bit. Abortion isn't really murder. That's actually just a choice. It's my body. Homosexuality is not really a sin. Marriage can be between anyone and anyone as long as they love each other. 
Women should be leaders everywhere, in the church, in the home. God's word doesn't apply to these situations. Don't you see how far we've come? This is disgraceful and underhanded preaching. Or preachers who use psychological manipulation, some kind of repetitive music, trying to create some kind of spiritual experience or hype to get a gospel response. It's disgraceful and underhanded preaching. And I'll give one last example. Preachers who teach that it's actually very easy to become a Christian. Bang, bang, bang. ABC. Acknowledge, believe, confess. Snap, snap. Say the sinner's prayer. Walk the aisle. Get your prayer card. God is obligated to save you at that very moment. He must. Or the Word of God's not true. He has to do what you say if you come to Him in that moment. As if God were somehow beholden to us in any way. This is disgraceful and underhanded preaching. You see, God's word has been attacked in every age. And the one key that I think you should use to identify false gospels and false teaching, this one key, if you hold on to this, it'll help. Any teaching that denigrates the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and any teaching that exalts the work of man, might be a false teaching. Because the Bible does not do that. The Bible always puts man where he should be, looking up to a holy God, stuck in muck and mire and sin, and needing God's grace to even see him clearly. So Paul says that he didn't use any special techniques. He didn't soften the gospel. He didn't alter the teaching of the Bible or soften God's holiness in any way. He didn't explain away depravity or wickedness or the condition of man at all. He didn't do anything he would be ashamed of. Whether Paul was speaking to Gentiles or Jews, to a Christian church, or to just pagan people, his gospel was the same because it was God's gospel. And that's our third point, is God uses his gospel to inspire confidence. The open statement of the truth, he says in verse 2, that was what he did. And he commended himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God by proclaiming the truth clearly. Whenever Paul preached the gospel, he was certainly winsome and kind, but he also preached the truth and love and he went straight at them. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. He preached an open statement of the truth in the sight of God. Coram Deo in the presence of God, before the face of God. He didn't need a letter of recommendation like the false teachers. His letter of recommendation was just his preaching. He spoke the truth to all people in the love of Christ. So how did Paul preach? Well, we have a couple examples. Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching to pagans in Athens who have never heard anything about God. They don't know anything about Jesus Christ. This is instructive for us. If this is how Paul preached to pagans, you can imagine how Paul preached to people who were somehow aware of God. Maybe Jews or Gentiles who had been around Jewish synagogues. But listen to how Paul preached to the pagans in Athens, Acts 17.24. He starts by saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what is he saying? God is your creator. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. All your temples, all your altars, they mean nothing to God. You can't bring anything to him that's pleasing at all. And yet he still gives you life and breath and everything. You owe your allegiance to this God that I'm proclaiming to you. In verse 30, he continues, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul, talking to a pagan audience who doesn't know anything, he says to them, first of all, that God is your creator, you owe him your allegiance, and it's time to repent. He's shown you mercy for thousands of years. He's not destroyed you. Rather, he gives you life and breath and everything. And now he's commanding you to repent to turn from these false gods and to worship Him alone. And it's not just a good option. It's a command from the Almighty God. He commands people everywhere to repent. Why? He says in verse 31, why? Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed and giving assurance by raising Him from the dead. Judgment is coming. And Jesus Christ is the one who will judge. He was the Son of God. He came to earth. He died and rose again. This is how Paul preached the gospel to pagans. He just stated the truth. You would think there would be a little more nuance involved. He just spoke the truth to them. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is always central to God's preaching, to Paul's preaching, I should say. 1 Corinthians 15, to this church in Corinth, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the gospel, the good news is Jesus Christ and his work. Jesus Christ and his person. His person, who he is, his work, what he did. This is the gospel. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And remember, Paul says all this is according to the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? The Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. Paul teaches the importance to a pagan community, to a Gentile culture, the importance of the Old Testament scriptures in all that he teaches in his gospel. Even when Jesus rose from the dead, in Luke, it says that he showed him in Psalms and Moses and the prophets all that the scriptures said about himself. This is part of Paul's gospel as well, not just the New Testament part of the gospel. But the fact that the gospel starts all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, running all the way to the end of the Bible. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember, this is a Gentile church, the church in Ephesus, and Timothy is a Gentile pastor. And Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, that's expected. We, we understand him saying that. But the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, to a Gentile church, to a Gentile pastor, it's important to preach that Jesus is the offspring of David. Why is that? Because Jesus is tied to all the promises of God from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture. 
After the fall of Adam and Eve, he's the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was the promised seed of Abraham who would increase his descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky. In the law of Moses, in the covenant with Moses, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Jesus was the promised King of the Jews, the seed of David who would rule forever. He's the hope of all eternity. He is the only good news. And all mankind must repent and believe. So I want to conclude the sermon by calling each one of you to repent and believe. Today is the day for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. This is a a horrible problem apart from Christ. There's no way you can approach God. And you have sinned every day against your holy creator. Every day. In thought. In word. And indeed, you're so hopelessly dead in your sin, you cannot change yourself. There's no way for you to approach God at all. But in God's great mercy, He has brought you here this morning to hear the good news of the gospel. It's mercy that you're here. And in His providence, you are here to hear the same good news that Paul preached. You must repent and turn to Jesus Christ. God sent him to redeem sinners just like you. He took your sin upon himself on the cross. He drank the wrath of God down to the dregs and transfers his own righteousness to everyone who would believe. And this is a free and full offer of salvation to all in my hearing. God calls you today to repent and believe. Pray that God gives you faith and repentance. Pray that maybe for the very first time, like Charles Wesley wrote, the chains would fall off and God's God's diffusing ray, His Spirit would open your eyes. Maybe for the first time to see how sinful your heart really is and how much you need a Savior to see the depth of your sin before the righteous Holy One of God. Maybe today is the day that you fall on your face before your Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus Christ and in the gospel that you have given us, the good news, we can approach you. We can find forgiveness. We can find comfort and confidence. For those of us who are already in the fold, who already know you, we thank you that the mercy you've shown us comforts our souls so that we do not lose heart. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but sustains us. We pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that you indeed would encourage our souls, that we might live for you and walk in your ways until our dying day. In Jesus' name.